So I'm sure that, especially over the last few years, uh, it seems like the news media um, regularly reports how Americans are growing in their general distrust of our institutions. Institutions being like the military, the police, the Congress, the media, the banks, uh, the courts, police, schools. So there's like 16 or 17 of these institutions that are really responsible for the, the leadership and ongoing stability of our country. Well, in 2022, the, uh, the Gallup poll, who's been running these since the 70s, they, they uh, discovered or polled that on average, Americans trust these institutions um, around 27%. Congress, I think, is at six. Now, we hear a lot of polls, and I think that we think that you know, these things may not really matter that much, but this poll, I think, is an important, because it is an important one because I think it reveals um, our general orientation as a country towards its leaders, towards its leaders. And I think what it shows is obviously a distrust, not only of these institutions, but since these institutions are where our leaders at, it's a, it's a profound distrust in our leadership, which is also revealing, I think, which is very obvious and I think very important and serious, a lot of fragmentation in our culture. We talk about this fairly often. There is a lessening of our common sense of identity, our common sense of purpose. The scholars call this a, a national spirit. It's fragmented, and it increasingly is fragmented. But I don't think this is, it's not, you know, it's, it's not just the case in our political parties. Um, we see it even with, within political parties, within corporations, within, within families. Almost uh, within, I was reading some articles this week, uh, one uh, scholar in the Harvest, excuse me, slow down a little bit, Harvard Business Review uh, has, has indicated that this is a, a widespread thing going on in corporations because people are increasingly um, critical of their leadership if they don't take the correct political stances on things, completely unrelated to what their organizations or corporations are doing. So there's a lot of division within, within companies. Um, and it's also revealing a problem, not just with, with leaders, but also with the, those who are following. There's a followership problem, there's a leadership problem as well. Years ago, a, a sociologist named Robert Bella wrote a book, he and his team, called Habits of the Heart. And they did a study, and it started in the 70s, and there's been three editions since then. They started to observe a lot of this fragmentation, and they wanted to get to the heart of it. They wanted to see uh, the book, the idea of Habits of the Heart. So Habits of the Heart came from, it's, it's a phrase that Alexis de Tocqueville coined, like in the 1800s, observing America. He wanted to see what was going on in the American people that led it to be this unique form of government uh, in, in all of the world, uh, what is holding these people together? And so he called these the habits of the heart. And so Robert Bell and his team, they wanted to see what has happened to the habits of the heart of Americans. They wanted to see what was causing this increased fragmentation, even as early as the 70s. So here's what they observed. 
and they've updated it a number of times. People have, they, people have clear commitments to things, clear commitments to work, clear commitments to their families. But when they're asked why they have these commitments, they can't explain it. They can't explain the ideas or the truths that should underpin these kinds of commitments. They say that it's easier to think about how to get what we want than to know exactly what we should want. And they saw that there were these two emerging visions. There's a vision of joy, like here's what joy would look like, and then there's a vision of success. Here's what success would look like. So here, joy was defined as this, an expressive ideal of a union of similar individuals bound together by spontaneous ties of love. This is a secular book. A world of harmonious unanimity that exists more in the realm of hope than in everyday reality. So a union of individuals, a world of harmonious unanimity. Success is a excuse me, a utilitarian market system of producers and consumers exchanging goods and services for mutual benefit. So there's these two visions, and the problem that they observed was that there was a great amount of difficulty that American people are increasingly having in uniting these two things. The idea, here's what they say. The ideas Americans have traditionally used to give shape and direction to their most generous impulses right, no longer suffice to give guidance in controlling the destructive consequences of the pursuit of economic success. Basically what they're saying is this. If, if the people don't have ideas present that direct their commitments and direct their actions, they basically slide into greed and selfishness. That was their observation. And so increasingly, Americans have not been able to explain, I, I just work hard because it's going to make me successful, I'm going to make money, or I, I'm supposed to love and take care of my family, but they can't explain why. Why is it that family is so important? Why is it that work is so important? Why is it that making money is so important? So there's no, there's no ideas shaping these things. We just are kind of on um, autopilot. And what happens over time, if the ideas aren't present that move us towards good things, we become selfish and greedy. It's the same thing that other philosophers and sociologists have found. Charles Taylor says, we've thrown off the higher orders of authority that used to govern our collective identities and societies. Now we are our own authorities guided by our inner feelings. These inner feelings then drive our moral choices, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our families, what we do for work. And that we are inarticulate when we try to explain the foundations of our actions and the foundations of our choices. On default mode, we bend toward greed, survival of the fittest, we're like the animals. 
Now, certainly we see ourselves and a lot of people in society driven by higher causes, a lot of activism. And what is the reason? And I haven't read anything on this, but what I sense is that there is a recognition in our culture that people are craving a moral compass that's more enlightened or more hopeful than one of simple economic prosperity. I think people want that. They know that just the pursuit of money is not in and of itself a good thing. But what researchers have found in, in, in a lot of the various activists' agendas, whether it's environmentalism or whether it's civil rights, whether it's racial issues, they look back to like the, the 60s, okay? And so if it's just in regard to civil rights. So the ideas underpinning Martin Luther King Jr. and the whole movement were very different than the ideas underpinning it now. They were more substantive, they were more authoritative, they were more unifying than they are now. They were deeper. We don't have the powerful ideas anymore that move us to our more generous impulses. Love, unity, self-sacrifice, the importance of the whole. And so when I was reading the Gospels in preparation for this series, I, you know, I, was, I, I took a week, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and I ran across this phrase. And it's a, it's a phrase, it's a familiar phrase, where Jesus recognizes all of these crowds. And he observes that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that phrase, I mean, it, I think when we think about it, we read it, we think about it, it's like, okay, these are just a bunch of aimless sheep. The comment is not on the actual individual sheep. The comment is a comment that is, that is characteristic of military or political leadership. And basically what, what Jesus observed was a people without the leadership that they need as a society, as a people, as a nation. And so he saw what Jesus observed was people desperate for what good leadership should provide. So this story is, you know, we just read a portion of the passage that I'm looking at today. And so um, it's the familiar story of, of Jesus and feeding these at least 5,000 people. Um, it's a very familiar story. It's repeated in all four of the Gospels. But it's actually um, a part of a story, and it's another one of these that we see in the Gospels, where the author is using, um, the scholars call it a sandwich. So it's, I'm gonna, it's the Gospel sandwich. And so they start a story, and then they interrupt that story to tell another story, and then they finish up the original story. So they put the bun on, all right? That's what's going on here. So this, the bigger story is this. Um, Jesus sends out the twelve into the surrounding villages and towns. He says, don't take anything that you need. Just take the shirt on your back. Don't take any money. Don't take any food. Go to the towns and villages and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. So they go out and do this, and they have a lot of success. So much success that, that Herod notices. So Herod is the king of Judea. He's the king of Israel at the time. He was a sub-king under various other rulers 
all the way up to Caesar. Okay, but he's, the, he's considered the king of, of Judea. So he hears all of what's going on, people getting healed, demons being cast out, etc. So he starts getting nervous, and he concludes that it's the, the, the spirit or the ghost of, of John the Baptist that he had killed. And so the story stops there, and it goes back and now tells the story of how Herod kills John the Baptist. And so what we have, we didn't read this, but I think you have the text in your handout. The, the scene cuts to Herod throwing a birthday party for himself. So Herod throws this big birthday party. The guests are all men. It's the political officials. It's the military officials. And he has his teenage daughter come in and dance in front of all these men. She's probably in her mid to late teens. All right. And her dancing, which was probably erotic and sensual at some level, pleases everybody. Well, he's, Herod is so excited. He was pleased by the dancing. He's so excited that all these men liked her dancing. And so he says, listen, I'm going to give you up to half of my kingdom. You did such a great job dancing. Now, Herod's wife was formerly his sister-in-law. Herod had a brother named Philip. Herod wanted to marry Philip's wife. And evidently, Philip's wife wanted to marry Herod. So Herod divorces his wife, who was the daughter of a neighboring king. So he upset all of that and marries Philip's wife. She divorces her husband. Well, John the Baptist, because he's a prophet to Israel, he, he, he basically told Herod that he was being unrighteous and violating the laws of God and he needed to repent. Well, Herod didn't like that, so he threw John the Baptist in jail. Herod's new wife, her name is Herodias, Herod's new wife wanted her husband to kill John the Baptist. John the Baptist, excuse me, Herod wouldn't do it. It's, the text says that he knew that John was a righteous and holy man, and he actually liked listening to his preaching. He knew he was holy, he knew he was righteous, he didn't want to put him to death, even though John's telling him he's a sinner, he needs to repent. And so Herodias is looking for an opportunity to kill John the Baptist. Well, this opportunity emerges. The text actually says, an opportunity arose when Herod was throwing a birthday party. So when Herod offers his daughter, excuse me, his stepdaughter, because it was Herodias' daughter from another from her first husband. She runs to mom, and mom says, and she says, what should I ask for? He's willing to give me half the kingdom. She says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod is trapped in his words. He's got this big crowd of military and political officials. He can't lose face. He knows his wife is behind this. He's just made this public promise, I'll do anything you want. So what does he do? 
rather than sustain the embarrassment and the shame and going back on his word and doing the right thing, he has John the Baptist killed. And so then the story returns back to Jesus and his disciples. The apostles return to Jesus, and then that's the story we have here. They initially want to take a retreat. Jesus wants to get them away. They're exhausted from all of the work, but the crowds are literally overwhelming them. They are coming from everywhere. And so Jesus has compassion. He's seeing these people, and that's where the phrase comes in. They are like sheep without a shepherd. He does two things. He teaches them. That's first. And then he feeds them. And then he, he uses the disciples, his, his men, for the work. And so this is, a, this is a developmental time for the disciples. And it meets all the needs of these people. The text says that everyone is satisfied. And they had an abundant amount left over. So I was reading the Psalms this morning and I came to this passage and it's David saying, you know, I will come to you, God. I will look at you in your sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And he says that my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I can't help but think that that's the image there. These are a people that are scrambled. They are now satisfied after Jesus teaches them and after he feeds them. So what is Mark's point here? Well, the sandwich, the gospel sandwich, is put there as a device, and we're supposed to do some comparing and contrasting here with this. And so what we are supposed to compare is Jesus and Herod. Herod is the king. Herod throws a banquet. Jesus is proclaiming a different kingdom. From the very beginning of Mark, Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is claiming to be a king, and he's got a different kingdom. So we have two kings, two kingdoms, two banquets. So we see these connections, and so it tells the reader, hey, stop, think about the differences here. So if we just look at Herod, Herod is arrogant, he's immoral, he's self-pleasing, he's irreverent, he's faithless. He violated the law of Israel in divorcing his wife, in marrying the divorced wife of his brother. He's irreverent towards God. He broke faith with his original wife, broke faith with his brother, broke faith with his father-in-law, created all sorts of political instability with that neighboring kingdom. He conspired with his sister-in-law. He divided his family, created all this instability. He exposes his teenage stepdaughter to all of these cronies. He's foolish in his speech. He promises half the kingdom, but it wasn't his kingdom to give away. He would have to get permission from Caesar. Hey, Caesar, can I give half of Judea away? He pleases people rather than leads. Because he's following all of this pressure that is his wife, his stepdaughter, his military and political cronies. He's not leading, he's pleasing people. And he's, he's, compromi he's a compromised hypocrite. He knows John is holy. He knows John is righteous. He knows John is a prophet from God. 
but he kills him anyway. He can't make clear decisions based upon what is right. He's greedy. He's concerned about himself, and the, these are the oligarchs. And he ends up killing the last of Israel's prophets. So the, the prophet that was to prepare the way for Jesus, he kills, betraying his very nation. So that's, that's the kingdom under Herod. That's, that's a human king. And so look, let's look at Jesus. He throws a different kind of party. I mean, literally, Herod serves the head of John the Baptist. Jesus is serving something different. So he, Jesus too has men around him. And Herod promised his kingdom. He promised authority. Jesus gives his authority. He says, I give you full authority. Go out and do this work. And they experience the power of Jesus in them in doing this work. And so Jesus' authority empowered his people to serve to do good. Herod's authority, he said, he didn't even end up doing it because he couldn't do it, but he was going to give his authority, his kingdom, because it pleased himself and others just around him. Not for good, for selfish purposes. Jesus leads his team to rest. Herod led his cronies into just further debauchery. Jesus is not in a palace celebrating himself. Jesus is in the countryside with his people. Jesus sees the need of the people and he does two things. He instructs, he teaches, and then he feeds. He feeds them. And so I, th I think it's important to stop and then ask, well, what is it that Jesus taught them? Jesus taught them what Mark has been saying that Jesus is proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom. And so the, the word gospel, it was used to announce a new administration, a new king. When a new king was born or a new heir to the throne was born, it was a gospel. It's not just a, it's not just a, a general word used for any good news. It was good news about a coming king who would bring a change and for the better for the current nation and kingdom. That's what gospel means. And so Jesus is teaching them the way of a different kingdom, the way of a different world. It would be, you know, just read the gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. Self-sacrifice, love, kindness, generosity, patience, the Good Samaritan type of teaching. Your, your neighbor is somebody who, who you see who has need, and it is good, it is a kingdom thing to help out a neighbor in need, regardless of what ethnicity or race that they're from. So it's those kinds of things that Jesus was teaching. It's that kind of kingdom that Jesus wants to bring the very words that I described earlier, what people aspire to. Let me see if I can find it here. A world of harmonious unanimity, which is unity, peace, that exists in the realm of hope. That's what, that's what Jesus is offering. That's what Jesus is offering. 
and then he feeds them. Then he, feeds, he meets their physical need after he's given them the ideas. Right? The commentary, the, the sociologists, the professors, the scholars, the philosophers, they are saying, we don't have the ideas anymore that we need to be a coherent society. Those are the ideas that Jesus was giving them. And what the scholars are saying is, as we move further and further away from the ideas that grounded American civilization, we are pushing out and we're no longer recognizing the need for, for God and his principles. Whether they were deists or really believers, it does, there, was an, there was an understanding that Christianity and Judaism provided a, an authoritative understanding of, of human relationships and of, of human dynamics and of natural law that a nation would need to withstand and hold up. The question is, is the further we move away from those ideas, will we be able to stay unified and held together as a country? And increasingly, we can see that it's not. But that's what Jesus was teaching. Here is what we need as a people for the kingdom of God. And once again, we see in Jesus' efforts to teach and then to feed, he brings this satisfaction. They're no longer this crowd scurrying all over the place, coming from all these different villages and towns. They are organized. It says that Jesus organized them into, into groups of 50 and 100. And they're just having a meal. But what, it is, what, it, what it's doing in the text, it's, it's pushing us back to think about Moses in the desert. So Moses in the desert, all of these people he had to judge, and so he organized them into tens and fifties and hundreds. And he, through the Lord, fed them. So he's embodying this vision of Moses that, that Moses said, a, a future leader will come like me, and you will follow him. So the main point in this gospel sandwich comparing Herod and Jesus, is that Jesus is the better king. And the miracle of feeding the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish, is, it's, a, it's an amazing miracle. But that's not really the main point. The main point is that Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the better leader. And we can then ask the question, well, how do we know that? Well, we can know it because he performed the miracle. The miracle points to something more important that the text is wanting us to see. So if we have this vision, a union of individuals bound together by spontaneous ties of love, a world of harmonious unanimity. If we have that vision, which I think, you know, it, the, it seems like every human being would want that. That's what a family is supposed to be, a union of individuals bound together by spontaneous ties of love existing in unity. That's what a city is supposed to be. That's what a nation is supposed to be. That's what the world is supposed to be. What we aspire to is what is supposed to be. But does it exist just in this realm of hope? Or is it actually something that can exist in the realm of everyday reality. And what Jesus has said, what Jesus said, it, as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he was saying the kingdom is here now. The kingdom is here now. 
And so what he's saying is that there is a possibility that we can start experiencing manifestations of the kingdom now. But what would it take to get there? Can we honestly see the world getting to this point? Individuals bound together by spontaneous ties of love? Is the world going to be able to get us to this point? Do we have the leaders with the ideas that can motivate our more generous impulses, as they say? Do we have the leaders with the character to avoid self-centeredness, to avoid setting up oligarchies and aristocracies? And do we have people who are willing to follow the leaders with those ideas? Mark, and really all of the Gospels, this is, this is the, the message of the Gospels, all four of them. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. But the Messiah being, Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. So the first idea, if we need these ideas to generate our more generous impulses, our motivations and actions, the first idea we need to acknowledge is that we need a king. We can't do it. We can't do it. The second idea, and maybe you can interchange these, the second idea that we need to acknowledge and that we need to believe in is that Jesus is that king. Jesus is that king. So the story ends, the last part. So they feed the 5,000. They're still exhausted. The disciples are needing a rest. So they get in a boat and they cross the lake. Jesus doesn't come immediately. They have a heck of a time getting across the lake. The winds, there's a storm coming up. They see Jesus walking on the water. And it, they freak out. <laughs> and and Jesus, and so they, they're crying out. They're kind of terrified because the boat's not going anywhere. And they see Jesus walking on water, and they can't figure out what in the world that means. And Jesus then gets into the boat, and everything becomes calm. And it says this about the disciples. They were astounded at what they had just experienced and observed. And they did, but they didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. So here are the disciples. They had spent days healing people. They had spent days exercising demons. They had just participated in Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying that to feed over 5,000 people. They had just experienced and observed all these things for themselves. But they still could not understand or believe who Jesus was. It says their hearts were hardened. They still couldn't understand and believe who Jesus was. It's not until later where Jesus asks them, who do you think that I am? We're Peter then proclaims, you indeed are the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. They're not there yet. And I think what this is important to show is that there is something in us as human beings that is needed beyond knowledge and beyond experience. 
Something needs to change in our hearts. Again, the disciples experienced and saw amazing things, but still did not believe or understand. So we need to ask ourselves, are our hearts hardened from seeing and understanding Jesus accurately? Regardless of where you're at in your faith, we are all in need of abiding and walking in Jesus Christ. If you do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, you need Jesus Christ. He's the true king. If you do know Jesus Christ, you still need Jesus Christ. He's the true king. We need to be able to say, like David said, when I see and experience your glory and your power, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. My soul is satisfied. And so we need to ask ourselves, wherever we're at, are our hearts hardened from seeing Jesus? Can we explain what guides our lives and why? Can we explain who or what we're currently following? If we're not following our political leaders, if we're not following Jesus, who or what are we following? Do I need Jesus? Do I need Jesus, and is it possible that my heart is too hard to see it? Because if my heart is too hard to see it, I'm going to resist him. But if there's something going on in my heart that's not good, I really would like to know about it. And so I think, I think you know, in closing, I think if that's where you might be, again, wherever you're at in your faith, if, if there's some hardness about Christ that seems to be preventing you from moving forward with him, here's a prayer. And I'll close with this. God, is my heart hard to you and to your kingdom? Is my heart hard to see that I need Jesus? Is my heart hard to see that I need a king, one that I can trust? If so, please soften my heart and help me to see and know what is true about me and about Jesus. Amen. Amen.